When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, we have proved ourselves to be ahead of the curve. Just yesterday, we spoke to Sir John Hayes of the Common Sense Group of MPs about his demand that the Home Office and the Prime Minister do something about the continuing wave of illegal migrants crossing the Channel. The sea was so calm yesterday that a record 409 migrants arrived on our shores. At one point, they were queuing up on one dinghy behind another. And it is now clearer than ever that this form of country's form of country hopping is a massive multi-million pound business run by ruthless human traffickers who are now actively recruiting people to bring here. We are continually told that these are desperate people risking their lives to find a better life. But let us put that myth to bed right here, right now. First of all, they are not risking their lives. One man yesterday could be seen wading through the shallows at Dover in a suit, carrying a plastic bag with what looked like his lunch in it. Didn't exactly look like it was a perilous journey, for heaven's sake. And more than half of those arriving did not even qualify for asylum under the rules set down by the United Nations. This morning, we are joined once more by Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage, the man who highlighted this crisis single-handedly and revealed the scale of the problem to the world because nobody else was paying any attention. We'll get his take on why this government still seems completely and utterly incapable of stopping it. Gary Lineker's name might come up as well because, of course, uh, he's given an exclusive interview to the Daily Mirror uh, to tell them what he told everybody else about two weeks ago. Doesn't seem like much of a piece of news to me. And he still hasn't managed to find, out of the 48,000 migrants that have come here so far this year, uh, one to put in his house. Strange, isn't it? Anyway, never mind. Coming up later on, we'll be checking in with a new campaign to save our shops. More than 80 chief executives have written to Boris Johnson backing my idea to get people back to work and back to work now. In London alone, half a million people are missing from day-to-day working and we need to get them back into their offices. Plus, Helen Dale joins us with her take on the nonsensical debate around the cultural misappropriation of black culture by Adele. Uh, She's also going to be talking to us about Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Plus, royal expert Charlie Ray brings us the latest from Montecito, California, where Harry and Meghan have signed a $100 million deal with Netflix to help with their continuing fight for their own privacy. Yeah, I know. Ridiculous, isn't it? 03444991000. More than ever, though, we need your calls as well. We've had some fantastic conversations this week already. Don't forget that we are not only the home of common sense, we are the only place that cares what you actually think. So do get in touch and tell us. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... 
Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say that we're joined once more by the man who is responsible for this entire migrant crisis even being on the news at all. It's front page of the Times again this morning because so many people came yesterday. Another record number, 409 individuals who came here illegally and are now seeking asylum on these shores. Are they doing any quarantine, I wonder? Nigel Farage is here. Nigel, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed once more for joining us, Nigel. I mean, a very opposite day to be to be here on the radio, really, because the front page of the Times does make for some rather grim reading. Um, but no matter how many times we get told by Pretty Patel that there's going to be a change of plan, a change of law, a stopping and, and searching or something, nothing seems to be happening. No, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, the bigger the crisis gets. And by the way, it was all very predictable. Mm. You know, I could see all of this four or five months ago. We knew a huge number would come this year. Even I didn't think we'd get as high as 400 plus in one day. But the response to it is tough talk. The response to it is promises it'll all end soon. Then we see pictures of Royal Air Force spotter planes in the channel, military drones, a former Royal Marine has been appointed. And all this does is just to illustrate our own impotence. Mm. This is about political Will, now you said that later on in the show, you're going to be talking about Tony Abbott, all right? Tony Abbott, the former Australian Prime Minister, he's in London this week. He faced exactly the same crisis as the Australian Prime Minister, all right? Boats coming, illegal migrants coming from Indonesia. Bigger boats, bigger journeys, more people, but the principle, exactly the same. And Abbott had the courage to stop those boats turn them around, tow them back to Indonesia, and to send out a message which said, anybody that comes illegally to Australia, this means will not be allowed to stay full stop. And guess what happened, Mike? The boats stopped coming. Exactly. And, and until we've got the political will there, and it goes to the top, this must go all the way to Boris Johnson, who notoriously has been very soft on illegal immigration. Don't forget that twice as mayor of London, he even proposed total amnesties for all the illegals living in London. Unless Boris has a change of heart, not only will this crisis continue, not only will the numbers continue to rise, not only will hotels all over the country be filled up, but what will also happen is trust in this conservative government will start to evaporate. They promised the British people, and it was part of the Brexit promise, wasn't it, that overall numbers coming into Britain would decline. And we're now seeing legal and illegal immigration running at all-time highs. Yes. And, this, and, and they may not care about it in Westminster. They may not think this is a really big issue. I promise you, out in the constituencies, and particularly in many of those red wall seats, this issue is red hot. It really is. We had a call from uh, a listener in Coventry this week, Nigel, uh, who told us the story, which was then reported in local paper, of a load of buses turning up uh, in Coventry, which is a city of sanctuary, another you know <laughs> secret sort of uh, project that we were never told about, which basically means that people from other countries who come here illegally get ahead of the game uh, in terms of getting a council house, ahead of people from this country. But the Coventry City Council actually rejected these boat, uh, these boat people who, who were on these coaches and said, no, we don't accept them. And they were sent on their way. Now, I don't know where they went. Nobody knows where they went, but they were driven right. off and, and presumably put up in a hotel yeah. somewhere outside of Coventry. 
that's the problem, isn't it? Now, this, this is the Royal Court Hotel you're talking about. Yes. Uh, you know, it's a pretty big hotel. 17 coaches turned up, and you're quite right. Uh, the local council put their foot down. The same thing, of course, happened when I visited Pretty Patel's constituency of Whittam yeah. in Essex, where I found a hotel in her constituency that was filled. And, of course, because it's the Home Secretary, they acted and the migrants got removed. But it doesn't mean they got sent back to France or Pakistan or Eritrea or anywhere else. They're still here in this country. Uh, the number that you quoted earlier is 48,000 people. Uh, I would guess that's probably now an underestimate. Yeah. Uh, we're also talking, by the way, about a bill for all of this that is now in excess of one billion sterling every single month. And I, I've been absolutely bombarded uh, with emails from people from all over the country. One of the common things I get are people saying, you know, my daughter's eight months pregnant, can't get on a council housing list. Uh, we've got a friend of ours who served 20 years in the parachute regiment. He's living rough on the streets. There is a sense of complete unfairness that those that are coming here illegally get benefits that many who live here and are, and are in desperate need are not getting. Yes. Well, it's a similar argument, isn't it, to the, to the foreign aid uh, budget, where I was talking to someone the other day, uh, and we were going through this list of, of projects that we had funded around the world, and one of them was some kind of literacy programme in Vietnam. Uh, and she said, oh, well, that's quite a good thing, isn't it? I said, well, how about a literacy programme in Britain first? And then maybe you could give a bit extra over to Vietnam if you wish to later on. Yeah, but- I, mean, li- I mean, literacy campaigns. But also, could I suggest maybe we should spend some of the money on a competency campaign for British cabinet ministers. <laughs> They're struggling a bit with that. Well, that wouldn't be bad. Also, we saw some new figures coming out of the Home Office last week. You've probably seen them as well, uh, in which it said, and this staggered me, that there are now 44,451 people awaiting a decision uh, on asylum. Now, I don't even know how long uh, many of those people have been here, but some of them applied for asylum in 2006, and it's now 14 years on, and they're still waiting. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were told years and years ago that the Home Office was not fit for purpose um, and we were promised it was going to be reformed. Theresa May was the longest serving Home Secretary in modern times. Nothing changed. And we now have in Pretty Patel the toughest talking Home Secretary, but is she going to deliver? And that really is the big question. So, look, the whole system is bust. It's not fit for purpose. But can I just say also... The point about legal immigration, we got the figures last week, they passed without much fanfare, 715,000 new people settled in the United Kingdom in the year to March. This is now back running at record levels. And, And I would suggest that at a time when the furlough scheme is about to come to an end, when unemployment is likely to go, we don't know yet, but possibly as high as 4 million, we should not have immigration levels, legally or illegally, running at these numbers. No. And also, a lot of the kind of, um, shall we say, arguments that were made for what you would call low-skilled immigrant workers coming into this country were were for them to do the jobs that people in this country didn't want to do. Clearly, that's not going to be the the landscape that we're going to be looking at over the next two or three years, because if people are are out of work, they're going to need work of any kind, aren't they? Of course. I mean, look, I never bought that argument. I mean, all it was was a means of driving down labour so that the minimum wage became the maximum wage for millions of people in this country. That's the reality of what we did. You know, it started during the Blair years, but sadly continued through Brown and Cameron, too. Um, I look, I, I, I want us to have 
as gooder relations in this country between all communities that we can possibly have. But that is only going to work if people come to the country the right way, legally, through the system. And I can assure you of one thing, and perhaps The Guardian don't understand this, it isn't just white indigenous people that are angry with what's going on in Dover. Many of those who've come into Britain from other countries around the world legally, done the right thing, been registered, been, you know, in many cases, that become, you know, naturalized Britons, they're even angrier mm. because, because they had to do this the legal way. They had to do this the hard way. So I think there's a, a remarkable sort of 75% of the country are concerned or very concerned about what's going on in the English Channel and its knock-on repercussions. And if the Tory party don't grip this quickly, it's going to do them huge, huge damage. Absolutely right. And one of the other things we've learned from the Australian experience is that they actually did not keep wages artificially low uh, because their trade unions and their left-wing politicians actually fought for the people of Australia and said, no, we're not going to let cheap labour come in from overseas and undercut what it is that you do. That's not going to happen. And so they weren't able to give these people work, which was another reason that they stopped coming as well. But what do you think is the political will that's lacking here, Nigel? Because, you know, there seems to me there are three kind of prongs to this. There's the human traffickers themselves who should be locked up and should be rounded up and should be found. Um, There's the uh, lawyers who continue to fight uh, for these people who come here. And as I've said many times, you can't really blame them for wanting to come here because it looks like a pretty easy ticket. Um, And three, um, the ability or the inability um, to send anybody back. Look, at the end of the day, why are people coming to the United Kingdom and not elsewhere? It's to do with pull factors, isn't it? Yeah. And the pull factors are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, a four-star hotel, three meals a day, £40 a week spending money, free health care, free dental care. Oh, and for some of them, a trip round Anfield. Yes, Even into the trophy room. Right. Um, and I, I'm told that uh, my clippage of that has actually been used as a means to recruit more to come. So that's what, that's what we've, that's what we've really been told. I'm very happy about that. No, listen, your, your, your clip has gone viral in Sudan, Nigel. I mean, because that's where <laughs> the human traffickers are turning up at refugee camps there and saying, look what you could be doing. Instead of sitting here wondering where your next meal's coming from, come with us. You know, here's a phone. Oh, no. You know, we'll give you a job and everything's going to be great. Yeah, you know, the pull factors are too great. And of course, and of course when, when your claim to be a refugee fails, as inevitably it will, because very, very few people that are coming in via this route would qualify mm. under the 1951 Geneva Convention uh, status on this, um, then, of course, you're not deported, you just disappear into the economy. So, look, at every level, at every level, we are getting this wrong. It's been going on for years in the back of lorries, caravans, even refrigerated units. And, of course, we saw that uh, terrible disaster at Tilbury mm. last year. The difference is... Coming across the English Channel by boat is more visible. The British, the, the British public and population have woken up to it and they really have had enough. They really have. But as far as the, uh, uh, the conversations that you and I have been having, Nigel, just even over, the, say, the past month or so, literally yes. nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is the size of the number of people coming over, which is growing literally by the week. Yeah. I mean, what has changed is we're spending even more money every single day on drones, aircraft, Border Force, uh, Royal National Lifeboat Institute, boats. I mean, the daily cost of this is absolutely humongous. Mm. But you're going to put the whole British Navy, well, what's left of it after <laughs> 10 years of the Tories, but you could put the whole British Navy in the English Channel 
And all the while the rule is, once they cross the 12-mile line, they can stay. What is the point? Yeah. Well, I don't understand what the drones are for. Are the drones there so that we can see how many people are coming before they get here? Because if that's all they're doing, then there isn't really any point, is there? Well, I think what the drones do, actually, um, is to point out to Border Force and Lifeboat exactly where the dinghies are yeah. so, that our ta- so that our taxi service can become even more efficient. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I was saying to Julia Hartley Brewer, perhaps the secret weapon in all of this, of course, might be Gary Lineker, because if they know that they're going to come here and end up living in his house, that might pre- that might prevent a few of them from coming as well. Well, uh, very interesting. We'll see who they pick yes. to live in, to, to pick in, in, in Gary Lineker's house. I'll bet you it's not somebody who fought for ISIS in Syria. Uh, no, I imagine that won't be the case. But also, as Julian pointed out, he did say he would do this in 2015. And thus far, uh, he hasn't managed to find one migrant that he wants to put up out of the 48,000 that have come this year. Uh, yeah, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, we'll see what happens. But whatever Gary Lineker does or does not do is actually in some ways a distraction uh, against the real issue. Yeah. Uh, and the real issue is we are being humiliated on the world stage. The real issue is we have a government that finally, having been reminded a bit last year, I think, in the European elections, picked up the mantle of Brexit. And, of course, that means taking back control. And it looks like they've lost control completely. It really does. And does that make you feel slightly uncertain as well about the rest of the Brexit situation in terms of these uh, Barnier um, sort of negotiations which don't appear to be going anywhere? Well, all I can tell you is this that the government is in trouble over the issue of competence. I mean, the bizarre, in-out, shake-it-all-about, hokey-cokey rules on quarantine, Uh, what's happening or not happening in Bolton, Uh, the fact that we're still incapable of testing people in a reasonable way in this country. At many levels, the government's being tested on its competence. On the immigration story, it's beginning to be tested on issues of trust. If they drop the ball on Brexit and cave in to Barney's demands, there will be a Labour government led by Keir Starmer at the next election. And Mm. that's why I still think on Brexit they're going to hold firm. At least I hope so. A lot of people have asked me, Nigel, uh, and they always ask whenever you've been on, are you and would you consider um, forming a new party or or enhancing the Brexit party as it still is a party uh, into some form of opposition to, to what this disappointing government has done? Well, look, I mean, if they drop the ball on Brexit, Mike, and if we finish up on the 1st of January next year, uh, having not taken back control of our fisheries, not being free of the European Union's rule book, not able immediately to start signing our own free trade deals around the world, if they drop the ball on this completely, uh, then I think I'm duty bound to come back and give them a kicking even harder than they got last year. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, beyond that, I mean, I'm in no doubt that our entire political system is in need of urgent reform. And we have a voting system that is completely out of date for the 21st century. We have a postal voting system, wide open to fraud and abuse. A House of Lords, which is now frankly an abomination, as it's been filled up you know, with hundreds and hundreds of friends of the last three or four prime ministers. There are many things about this country in urgent need of modern political reform. The difficulty is, to fight for that through a political party under the the first-past-the-post system that we have is a very difficult 
thing to do. Mm. Uh, and it might just need somebody younger and a bit more, uh, somebody younger and, and, and dedicated to pick up the mantle from me. It may well be, but I mean, they, there is no doubt in my mind, Nigel, that your force is still very strong, uh, that your political um, nous is, is better than most politicians that I've ever met. And there's no question whatsoever in my mind that people would get behind you uh, as an individual uh, in a way that they would never do uh, with anybody else, just because I think they put their faith in this government. They put their faith in Boris Johnson. They wanted to get Brexit done. But it seems as though everything else is happening all around him um, without him seemingly being in control of any of it. Oh, no, that's a perfectly fair point. Uh, Mike, you know, all I can say is I've spent 25 years of my life fighting through political parties to get change. Um, Over the course of the summer, um, I've done it with an iPhone, uh, going out into the English Channel and around the country. And whatever I choose to do in the future, all I can promise people uh, who are listening and watching to this now, whatever I do in the future, I will go on trying to influence, shape and change the situation in this country. Excellent stuff. Well, very, very good to see you again once more, Nigel. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit Party, a man who has done more. Uh, You know, people say to me, uh, whenever people who don't like Nigel Farage, whenever we get him on, they say, why is he here? What's he doing? He's never achieved anything in life. Well, I'll tell you what he has achieved. He's achieved getting the United Kingdom out of the European Union. If it wasn't for him, it would never have happened. We're still fighting that particular battle, and we're still trying to make that happen, uh, albeit uh, that it's almost done and it's almost on the way to being done at the end of December but he's also a man who has highlighted very very well and with great bravery actually this particular problem that is currently crippling this government because the more the government cannot seem to stop something from happening the more the government seems to not be in control of its own borders and that I'm afraid is not what people voted them in for So get it fixed, get it sorted. We spoke yesterday to uh, one of the leaders uh, of the Common Sense Group of MPs. The government needs to do something, and they need to do something quick. 409 people came yesterday. How many are going to come tomorrow? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, have you ever wondered what you should do in life? to get more hope into it. Because that, my friends, is precisely what we all need, isn't it? Some hope. Just give us some hope. Now, there are lots of people that can give you hope. Your parents can give you hope, you know. Um, Your priest can give you hope if you have one. Your vicar, you know, possibly your imam can give you hope. Your family can give you hope. I see where I didn't expect to get any hope from, and that was from Harry and Meghan. Harry and Meghan want to give us some hope. And they want to inform us as well. Isn't that nice? Let's talk to Charles Ray, former royal editor of The Sun, to find out what on earth they're up to now. Charlie, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, mate. Now, may the hope be with you, is what I feel like saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the long-awaited deal that uh, they've been angling for for some time. I mean, this is their this is their attempt, and it's a very healthy attempt to be financially self-sufficient. Uh, and they're obviously walking away with about uh, the best part of a hundred million pounds from Netflix to produce all sorts of walk and write on documentaries of uh, things that they enjoy, like um, uh, the environment. And you mentioned earlier on in, in, when you started off talking about you know family-oriented stuff, which is a bit. As Piers Morgan has said, bit rich from two people who basically walked away from their own family. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, I mean, maybe they could start with a documentary about themselves and why they ditched <clears throat> each of their families uh, in order to run away and live in Montecito. And they, they, this is, the, I mean, the, the, you know, this is something that they could never have done if they'd stayed in the UK um, because, you know, royal family rules protocol would have prevented them from making money uh, from financial, from uh, commercial enterprises uh, while they worked for the royal family. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, I, I read somewhere this morning that neither of them have got any production experience. So they're actually going to have to hire producers to help produce the programmes that mm. they're going to make. And then their names would go on the uh, uh, would go on the product at the end. Yes. It's a bit like some of the byline bandits that you and I both knew when we worked in New Indeed. Stable, right? Absolutely right. But this is the, the other great thing. I mean, she's got a little bit of, um, of experience as an actress, yeah. right? However, that's a bit like saying, you know, I used to sell uh, property. I'm now going to start building it. I think it's partially one of the interesting things is that uh, when we're talking about, she's made it clear she's not going to go back to acting, but it looks like that they are both going to help narrate some of the programmes, which obviously, I mean, the big attraction is the fact that they are Harry and Meghan, two members of the, if you like, the strange royal family. And this deal is very similar to the deal that uh, Barack and Michelle Obama uh, have with Netflix after they left office. Um, uh, you know, uh, I can't say I've seen any of their work yet. Has any of it come no, out? No, neither have I. No, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I haven't. It's I, great, I, isn't it? I mean, I like, I like Netflix, but I mean, I'm not a big watcher of you know documentary stuff on Netflix. So I, I mean, I just don't know what Michelle and Barack Obama have produced, really. But they, they've certainly got a very, very healthy bank account in mm. this. We have to believe that their deal is very similar to the one of Harry and Meghan. Yes, but to be fair, at least uh, Barack Obama was, was actually president of the United States of America. Quite an important job. He, so, so you yeah. would you would want to listen to quite a lot of what he had to say, whether you agree with it or not, is not the point. But Prince Harry, I mean, literally, is about as ignorant as anyone I've ever I think I've ever come across. He doesn't really know about anything. He's not an expert in any particular field. You know, he's certainly not an expert in anything other than being woke. It seems to me. No, it, it, it's not, and and you know that when you saw the you know their 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 comment yesterday about what it was going to be, it it all it was all very much Mills and Boone stuff, really. You know, it's it's all about love, and you know we're going to creating content that informs, but also gives hope. Uh, as new parents making inspirational family programming, it is important to us. Well, you know, God, give us a break. Will you? I mean, it's bad enough them putting out a video once a week. You know. Yeah. It's actually a lot worse than you've made it out to be. I'm going to tell, I'm going to read it out, right? Because it's that bad. <laughs> Our lives, both independent of each other and as a couple, have allowed us to understand the power of the human spirit, of courage, of resilience, and the need for connection. I mean, what the hell are they talking about? They want to shine a light on people and causes around the world. Our focus will yeah. be on creating content that informs, but also gives hope. I mean, how bleeding arrogant, apart from anything else. Well, let's hope that with their newfound wealth, that they'll be able to pay off Frogmore Cottage That'd be nice. uh, a lot quicker. Well, than we'd like the money years. back for the wedding as well, please. Uh, <laughs> While you're at it. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. And uh, But the interesting thing is, don't forget that Prince Charles has given Harry and Meghan £2 million, pounds, which is going to be reviewed next year. So I'm assuming uh, Charles is quite, sitting back quite happy because... I doubt very much he's going to have to fork out the £2 million again. I suspect that wouldn't keep her in lunches in Rodeo Drive, would it? No, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it would. But at least, uh, as far as I'm aware, they're not costing 
people like you and me and the British taxpayer any money at all, apart from the money that they owe us for the Frogmore Cottage. Are we not still paying in some way for their security, though? I'm not sure we are. I, I can't believe that there's... I, I, don't, I, I don't know, because I know that Scotland Yard withdrew some of the officers. I cannot believe that there is still a Scotland Yard officer involved when they've got this private security company, because obviously there'd be some sort of conflict between the, the police and and the security firm, I would have thought. I'm, I'm just not sure on that one. No, you would think so. But I seem to remember, and you'll remember this probably better than me, when Princess Diana kind of left the fold, as it were, because she wasn't actually a member of the royal family, she could rely on uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed's personal security people, and she wasn't given, you know, sort of, you know, a crown uh, protection. However, Prince Harry well, is still a member of the royal family, and he can't maybe uh, actually operate without it. Yeah, well, unfortunately for Princess Diana, using Al-Fayed security didn't end all that well. Well, that's the problem. That's that's what I'm saying. I mean, that's why I'm saying that maybe that maybe somebody somewhere will say, well, I'm sorry, but we've got a duty to look after Prince Harry. He is, after all, albeit number yeah, six, he's still heir to the throne. Yes, and, and let's also not forget that it was Diana herself who decided to dispense with the yes. uh, Scotland Yard right. uh, security, and not it was not taken away from her by the Queen. Uh, the Queen agreed to her request. Mm. You're absolutely right with Prince Harry. I am sure that there's somewhere in the mechanism that Scotland Yard still have some sort of overwatch or, or something to do with Harry, and particularly Archie, because he is the Queen's great-grandson as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's, they've got to have some sort of input somewhere, but I'm not sure exactly how I many. I don't think there's any physical mm. officers actually guarding the couple. No, interesting. But I think the thing that will upset people the most is not so much that it's costing us money. It's the fact that here's a guy who preaches about privilege all the time, who preaches about how we all have to be better at not being racist, who's a guy who has had nothing but privilege. Yes, he had a tragedy in the early part of his life when he lost his mother, but lots of people have problems that they have to overcome. But that he is now on the brink of making massive amounts of money simply because he happened to be born into the British royal family. And I think that's pretty distasteful. Well, yeah, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. The fact that, I mean, Netflix wouldn't be wanting to give me or you £100 million to make sort of the sort of videos that we would No, want listen, to- I'll, do it, I'll do it for a million, Charlie. <laughs> you know, I could do it for 100 times less. But the, the, the other interesting thing is, is about these two is, if you remember one of the big things, you know, we're sick and tired of Britain because we don't get a private life. Well, they ain't going to be getting much of a private life <laughs> by, by signing up with Netflix for a for a hundred. Oh, quite. Well, listen, ever since she, that she's been in Montecito, I think she's done, I mean, I think they must have a video studio there. They've done a video practically once a day ever since she's been there. But listen to this. I've got this from Roger, who's just tweeted me in. He says, I've just cancelled Netflix. They inquire as to the reason for the cancellation. I tell in Harry and Meghan. <laughs> so maybe it'll backfire. Well, maybe some people will decide that they don't want to. Uh, they don't want to have Netflix if it's if it's if it's Harry and Meghan. Uh, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. They, they wanted to go on the speaking circuit when they moved first of all to the states. Yeah. But obviously, COVID nineteen put the mockers on that, so they didn't do that. I think they've done. I think they've done one speaking engagement in New York a uh, long time back. Yeah. So that's. That's gone, by the way. So they've had to look for something else. And, you know, we they said they wanted to be financially self-sufficient. Well, they go, there you go. You've got your wish, sweetheart. So let's, uh, let's see how you do now. Yeah, absolutely right. And, I mean, who knows um, what kind of uh, partnerships she will also try to form 
uh, in this new company because I'm sure that they've still got one eye on Oprah Winfrey. I mean, wasn't there supposed to be some kind of project that they were doing with her? Is that that's gone very quiet? That was Hardy. I thought Hardy was was going to do something with Oprah Winfrey right from the start. You see, lots of people talk about they're they're there in Santa Barbara, Montecito, and they're very close to people like Oprah Winfrey and this Ellen DeGeneres. Well, working with Ellen DeGeneres isn't going to get them very far, given that she herself is involved in a huge embarrassing row yes. about bullying of her staff. Right. Um, so that, and, and her, I think her programme has actually been canned now because of the furore that it's, that it's caused. So they're left with opera. There's also a rumour that Harry is planning to do some sort of link-up with Spotify. Mm. And someone said this morning, well, he does like music. Well, I like music as well, but no one's going to link up. Yeah. Well, no, he's going to do some kind of podcast, I understand, or they were going to do some kind of podcast. But, you know, they're better off listening to my podcast, once again, uh, because, one, they're far more entertaining, and, two, uh, you can actually uh, get something out of them, as opposed to listening to a pair of, you know, overprivileged, woke, um, you know, idiots, basically, uh, who are telling you about how terrible their lives are. Nobody asked me how I am. You know. Yeah, I, I still I, I I had the opportunity to rewatch that um, that documentary that they did with uh, Tom Bradbury oh, yes. in, this, in South Africa the other night, and I looked at it again and I thought, no, I'm not wrong. She's got this right round her neck. The whole the whole thing was it's all poor me and woe is me. Nobody likes me, and you know everybody everybody's down on me, and, and it's just absolute cod. Oh, it really is. It's total self indulgent uh, nonsense, narcissistic. Old cobblers. Yeah. One final question. I see that Prince Harry was talking to the Rugby League Association or something earlier this week, and he said that basically he had planned to come back uh, to the UK, but uh, he wasn't able to because of the COVID problem. Well, first of all, I don't yeah. understand why, because he's perfectly capable of coming here and quarantining. It's not like he has to go and work for a living. You know, he can go and sit in Frogwell Cottage <laughs> for 14 days and, and have you know, hot and cold running butlers. You know, what's the problem? But secondly, I wonder, and I've been told, and you might know whether this is true, uh, that he has to be careful how much time he spends in California, you know, on consecutive days and weeks and months, because he then suddenly becomes liable for tax. I think that's right. That he, he's got to he's got to you know, face a, a huge tax bill if he stays um, uh, for uh, over over overstays his welcome. But he's planning. I'm told he's planning on coming back to the UK. Um, beginning of early next summer, maybe a bit before that, because he's got the Invictus Games and they've also got this unveiling of the Diana statue finally at Kensington Gardens, uh, which is going to be on her birthday, July the 1st. So he's planning on spending, uh, you know, a few weeks, months, perhaps, in the the UK. So that should solve that problem for him. Yeah, I can't wait. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Charles Ray, uh, former royal editor of The Sun, author, of course, of several books about the royal family. But who on earth do these people think they are? Really? Seriously? You know, we're going to give you some hope. Don't bother. Keep it to yourself. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, some people are just never satisfied, are they? I mean, Tony Abbott, whatever you like him or not, whether you uh, are in agreement with his politics or not, um, is a pretty useful person to hire uh, to help with the Brexit negotiations. Why? Well, for quite obvious reason that he was once the Prime Minister of Australia. And therefore, he was a very senior politician who dealt with things at a very senior level. Why would you not want someone like that on your team in order to help you get what it is that you want? 
But of course, given that we now live in 2020, uh, where you can't even braid your hair anymore for fear of being told that you're culturally misappropriating some Jamaican uh, people's hairdo, like Adele did, you can't actually win. Tony Abbott has now been described as a misogynist and a man who may be a racist and a man who should not be involved with this government in any way, shape or form. Not just by uh, some Guardian reading liberal columnist, this indeed by the First Minister of Scotland. Let's talk to Helen Dale, uh, our favourite Australian on this show, to find out what is going on. Helen, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mark. How are you? Well, listen, I'm slightly upset about the the, 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 the sort of the, the stuff that's being thrown at Tony Abbott. I mean, he's a very senior politician. Uh, he was a man, as you've described before Nigel Farage did, uh, who, who sorted the illegal migrant business in Australia. The fact that we've now got him on our team negotiating with Brussels, I would think is a pretty good thing, isn't it? Well, Tony Abbott is an intensely polarising figure mm. in Australia. So two things to keep in mind. One, any former Australian Prime Minister, regardless of political stripe, would be an excellent trade envoy. Australia has decades of experience as being an open, outward-facing, free-trade-affirming country. It is very good at... Its civil service is historically very good at negotiating trade deals. They do them quickly. They do them effectively. Australians are very, very, very good at this. And any Australian... XPM, uh, going right back to the the oldest two of them, which are John Howard and Paul Keating, they're both still alive, um, would be absolutely fine. The only downer for those two men would be the fact that they're both quite elderly because they were Prime Minister a long time ago. Abbott's still relatively young, as is Gillard, as is Rudd. All of those people would actually be very good at trade. Uh, you could pick any former Australian Prime Minister. Rudd maybe less so. Was he the one because- that bur- he was the one that burst into tears famously, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, not only that, despite the fact that he's got, uh, Kevin Rudd had a background as a diplomat and was uh, considered to be very clever and very thoughtful. He spoke fluent Mandarin. I mean, he actually had his own nickname in Mandarin that Chinese people would give him. Right. His Mandarin was so perfect. You know, they would, people would get into telephone conversations in Mandarin with, uh, on the, with, with Kevin Rudd and they just think he came from a different part of China. His accent was so good. So he was very clever, but he had a personality flaw that became apparent when he was prime minister that's far more serious than any of the flaws that Abbott or Gillard or Morrison or Turnbull had, which is basically he would lose his rag at people who disagreed with him Mm. on a trade issue. And he notoriously, at the Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009, he had a disagreement with a Chinese figure, a Chinese civil servant, and he then went away and didn't realise that the Chinese man understood some English and he talked in extremely disparaging terms about the Chinese delegation, um, including a swear word that I can't use now because it's before the watershed, Mm. where he basically said the Chinese are trying to rat F us. The Mm. Chinese are rat effers. Not very diplomatic then really, is he? No, you don't want that sort (laughs) of figure being a trade envoy. And one of the things that became very clear when Australia turned into what I called in my standpoint article that I tweeted out, which I wrote last year on this situation, when Australia became Italy with crocodiles, where we went through six prime ministers in eight years, if you count Kevin Rudd twice, mm. because he came back again. Um, one of the things that became clear was that the two that were publicly popular, which was Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd, and this is independent of politics, uh, Turnbull was coalition, liberal national, right, right-leaning. Uh, Rudd was Labour, uh, centre-left, 
um, was that the ones that were popular with the public were awful to their staff and dreadful to deal with. Mm. Whereas the ones that were less popular with the public, which was Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard, and once again, different sides of politics, Tony Abbott was coalition, Julia Gillard was Labour. They were the ones who were adored by their staff, who were seen to be very easy to work with and who were good at trade negotiation. They were both good at this. And in fact, Julia Gillard was generally good. I was... This was when I was working for a parliamentarian uh, at the time. Julia Gillard was generally just very good at negotiating with people full stop. She was a very personable figure. But in public, she was like Theresa May in 2017, gave these dreadful wooden set point speeches that yes. were completely unpersuasive. Um, so Tony Abbott will be fine at his, as his trade job. And it is legitimate and fair to call any senior Australian political or civil service figure hired with that background ground in mind an expert australia's good at this much better than britain much better than the eu right that's a simple thing but yet uh, here we have um, a senior figure politically in this country nicola sturgeon saying that she wouldn't have him anywhere near any government negotiating process and doesn't think that he should be being and that used. is and that is a reflection of the election campaign between which was fought between tony abbott and julia gillard mm. The Abbott was an extraordinarily effective opposition leader. Like the coalition had been absolutely slaughtered in 2007 when Kevin Rudd became prime minister. They should have been out of power for a decade. Um, Rudd was so incompetent, he was removed by his own party and Gillard was put in his place. She was much more competent, but had this Theresa May style wooden presence mm. that just didn't cut it through to the Australian people. Abbott was this live wire and a good public speaker and funny and, 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 and just seemed to sort of have more of a mojo. But the way he ran his campaign, it was relentlessly negative. Mm. And when he won in 2013, and he, he did indeed win, um, he then brought this negativity to his style of governance. And I mean, in this period, that was 2013 was when the politician I was working for, David Lionheld, was first elected. And David made the comment when we were constantly, because David was a crossbencher in the Senate, uh, and so therefore had to be negotiated with when the government wanted to get bills through the upper house. Remember Australia, the two chambers are equal in power, the right. House of Representatives and the Senate. And I remember David saying to me, we were sitting in David's office in Canberra, and David said, it's like anti-communication. All he can do is campaign. He can't actually govern. And one aspect of this was his behaviour in the chamber, in the House of Representatives. Right. And there was a very famous incident where he and Gillard had a roaring ding-dong row, and you can find it on YouTube. Watch the full-length version where you've got both Abbott and Gillard going for it, hammer and tongs. Mm. You will be appalled and horrified by this because the Australian House of Representatives and even the Senate, and I've watched Senate Question Time as well in Australia many times because I worked for a, a senator, makes... PNQs here look like a very sedate little garden <laughs> tea. Well, do you know it's interesting what you say about uh, about Tony Abbott because Boris Johnson is now being accused of exactly the same thing that he he was great at campaigning, fantastically uh, campaigned twice and won uh, the election to become mayor of London, uh, one uh, prime minister uh, with eighty seat majority, but governing is a very different kettle of fish. 
Yes, I mean, all governments learn this, and I say this in my standpoint piece, which I tweeted out and which you've retweeted. Um, governing is harder than opposing. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason Keir Starmer is doing so well is purely because he's not Jeremy Corbyn and he's the leader of the opposition and he's smart enough to be able to ask good questions. But if the boot were on the other foot, he would be in exactly the same level of mess. Yes, of course. Governing is much harder than either than just opposing or le leading the opposition. And if you're very bad at it, like Jeremy Corbyn, then you do come unstuck. But Starmer is obviously an order of magnitude more able than Jeremy Corbyn was. That's simply obvious. From well, Jeremy behavior. Corbyn has now lost the plot to such an extent that he actually put out a video yesterday. Because he won a thanking, Twitter poll. Thanking people it. who voted him in, on a Twitter poll uh, as the best prime minister yes, we never had. I mean, how deluded do you have to be to do that? I know, it's just very, very... I saw a joke, I th I think it was Jeff Norcott or Constantin Kizin, yeah. about winning in a Twitter poll, yeah. um, thinking that it's politically relevant is like thinking that Monopoly money is relevant to your credit rating. <laughs> and I have to say that did I saw that and I absolutely snorted and had a cup of tea in my hand. Yes, was, oh, absolutely. That's very funny. Well done. Well too. done, yeah, absolutely um, right. But, but, I mean, as far as the Tony Abbott kind of misogyny um, uh, it's accusations the, it's the, are. That is, it, is it from that, that speech? So, it's from that speech. Basically, what had happened was the Speaker of the House in Australia is not impartial mm. in the same way that the Speaker is here. Like didn't, Berko, didn't used no to be here either. Kind of <laughs> no, and so what happened, so Australia follows the elder tradition. Now, you, the Speaker is meant to be impartial once they sit in the chair, right. and most of the time they are, but they are still a normal MP with a normal constituency that they have to win at election time against other parties. And if they lose their seat, a new Speaker will have to be elected. So it's, it's quite different. Right. And anyway, there was a bit of a dry run at trying to have an independent Speaker in Australia. And the, the chap who was chosen was a guy called Peter Slipper. Mm. And uh, he was more the Burko or the current Q, uh, the current chap, yeah, the mm. idea of an independent speaker. He was an independent, he sat in the House as an independent rather than one of the other parties. And anyway, a sexual innuendo about Peter Slipper became known. Um, and it was a relatively serious one for the simple reason that in Australia there is an omerta on reporting on politicians and senior journalists' sexual peccadilloes. Yes. It's only if they're exposed as hypocrites are they reported on by the press. And Slipper was exposed as a hypocrite. Mm. He had been very opposed to homosexuality. He'd been very anti-gay rights. And it had turned out he had made homosexual advances on his staff. Right. And anyway, Labour... I mean, it's wanted... amazing, isn't it, how many times that is the case with some politicians? Oh, well, well yes, this is this is the Christopher Hitchens point, and it's the, it's the point that Ed West made in his book we were talking about last week. If you're a social conservative and you're caught as a hypocrite, it's just fatal. Mm. But it's also, if you're an environmentalist and you're flying first class everywhere to go to Extinction Rebellion protests, it's also just fatal, and it's the same thing. But anyway, there was an argument over Slipper because it was Gillard's government that had appointed him Speaker and it was supposedly a campaigning Labour government and Julia Gillard was Australia's first woman Prime Minister. Yeah. And so Tony Abbott got stuck into her for, why are you appointing this horrible person who's a horrible, sleazy, sexist, awful human being, yeah. which he was. Um, the, um, so what you've, what you've got then is... Um, 
something just popped up on the screen there. But, yeah, uh, so then Julia Gillard got very cranky about being lectured and she got up and she said, I will not be lectured mm. by this man about sexism, basically. And it was a very, very powerful speech and it referred back to the way Tony Abbott um, treated her in the chamber and also when he campaigned against her. And this was extended to aspects of his general social views. Mm. The Abbott family is is very is a very strange family in the context of conservatism in Australia, because Tony Abbott's background is as a conservative Catholic. And traditionally in Australia, Catholics vote for the Labour Party. Now, so this is just one of the peculiarities of Australian yes. history. But Tony Abbott had finished up in the coalition rather than in the Labour Party. Originally, going year going back years the Labour Party had courted him he was a very talented man he was a very fine athlete he went to Oxford he was a Rhodes Scholar although admittedly he was chosen the the two big scholarships Rhodes and Clarendon I was a Clarendon Scholar so I've got some awareness of how that they work they require you to be an all-rounder so you need to be clever but you also need to be good at sport as well but there is a tends to be with the Rhodes Scholarships often they'll go more one or more the other depending on the, the year and so Tony Abbott was more of a sportsman so he was a double blue in boxing while he was at Oxford he later became a competitive triathlete a super athlete you would never guess his age because he plays so much sport and he rides for miles and you know he does lots he does volunteer surf life-saving which is a big deal in Australia because the seas are dangerous yeah. and the surf is big anyone who's traveled there so he was more the sporty kind of road scholar and interestingly the huge fight that he got into with malcolm turnbull who i was actually in canberra in senator lionhelm's office in the australian parliament house when malcolm turnbull spilt abbott that's what australians call it when there's a turnover of the leadership within a political party like what happened with say gordon brown and yeah. tony blair that's called a leadership spill and i was actually in the part in the parliament we were all watching as uh, the votes were counted in the the parliamentary coalition what what is called the party room in australia and then abbott was defeated by malcolm turnbull and we were all standing there watching it and then they all came out and gave their speeches in the forecourt in parliament in parliament house and abbott conceded and turnbull won had won and all of that kind of thing and the at Abbott was a Rhodes Scholar, Turnbull was a Rhodes Scholar, but Turnbull was one of the ones that wasn't a sporty Rhodes Scholar or not very sporty. He was very intellectual. And if British people have heard of Malcolm Turnbull, it's to do with spy catcher. He was the one that busted the spy oh, catcher yes. case open that, yeah. so, that Pete, so that Peter Wright's book had to be published, yeah. basically, and because it was being then being published in Commonwealth countries and, and Turnbull was the lead counsel on that case. Uh-huh. Very, very fine barrister right. before he went into parliament enormously successful businessman multi multi-millionaire he donated his entire salary prime ministerial salary to charity every year because it was literally the the kind of change that you and i would lose down the back of the sofa to him right so absolutely right and whatever he, happened to julia the, whatever happened to julia gillard after all of this well she just she very sensibly and unlike kevin rudd i have to say just quietly stepped back from politics right behaved in a much more mature and sensible way. Turnbull and Rudd are the two who've carried on like two bob watches, one from each side of the aisle. And until now, Abbott has been fairly quiet as well. He sort of stepped back from it also. So the the personalities continued to persist. 
But the point is you had this extraordinary polarizing period in Australian democracy, six prime ministers in eight years, if you count Kevin Rudd twice, you know, and the yes, huge it was, it wasn't, Rudd. it wasn't, I, I remember it being an incredible time. It's, how, how will, how yeah. will um, Abbott react, do you think, to being labeled as a misogynist in this country? He's will he constantly care? been, he's been called, called this all his time in Australian politics. And I honestly think it's water off a duck's back to him. Um, if I were to reassure, I mean, I'm gay myself, if I were to reassure gay people in this country, because it's mainly about same-sex marriage that yeah. is the issue, um, is that he's not being asked to address social issues. I would be more concerned if someone were, were going to put him in charge of, say, family policy or that yes. kind of thing. Because when he tried to come up with ideas about you know, sort of maternity leave and whatnot. They were always in Australia. They were always incredibly cack-handed, not properly costed, and that <laughs> right. kind of no, thing. No, we don't. We've got we've got had... uh, we've got Harry and Meghan for family policy now in this country, so we don't have to worry oh, too much about yeah. anything else. But so if he's doing trade, be he'll be fine. Yeah. Well, he's, I'm looking for. I'm looking Australia's forward good to it. At that. <laughs> but also, he sounds like a character, and he sounds like a guy that would be welcome uh, in our rather uh, sort of wishy-washy world at the moment of he's politics. He's very because... good on. He's very good on charitable stuff. Yeah. I mean, if he finishes up with any role in charitable organisations, uh, particularly for disadvantaged kids. He had a great reputation in Australia for helping disadvantaged Aboriginal kids. Yeah. Um, so if you get him involved in the charitable sector, I mean, he's just really, he's one of those people who rattles the surf lifesaver's yeah. bucket and he can just talk you into putting money in it. Right. Well, listen, you know, it's, a I, I, it's a very welcome addition, as far as I'm concerned, to the political discourse that we're having. Let's finish up uh, before we go, Helen, just on um, Adele. Uh, let's talk about the ridiculousness of that uh, accusation that was made about her somehow culturally misappropriating uh, black culture because she had her hair uh, put into ringlets and, uh, and, and, and... And wore a Jamaican bikini. And wore bikini. a Jamaican bikini. Yeah, I, I have mean, to say, I really. was delighted. I was delighted. With relatively few exceptions, the response, of Britons, of Jamaican heritage, yes. and broadly speaking of West Indian heritage, was just beautiful. Mm. I mean, you might disagree with David Lammy, but the way he popped up the tweet and goes, good on you, Adele, ignore the haters from yeah. across the pond. Right. <laughs> well, he might be stupid, David Lammy, but he's not that stupid. He doesn't want to upset the people in <laughs> his constituency who like showed, Adele. I know. What it showed is that the difference in history between race relations in the United States and the United Kingdom is just extraordinary. And just watching all these black British people going, Americans, go away. No, we're not talking down to you because of your skin colour, right. because we're black too. We're talking to you like this because you're Americans and you need to stop telling other countries yes. how to run their domestic policy. Yeah, also, and I think the problem, for, like... also, the problem for a lot of, I think, black American activists is they don't really get uh, people who aren't white in this country and they don't really get the multiculturalism of this country because America's not like that. America uh, is a very segregated society and continues well, yes, to be is, so. Every time every time I go to the United States, I notice this. Uh, and I have to say my partner went, had some experience of this, with a situation where seeing a perfectly nice area uh, with a view to purchasing a house and... Uh, was told, oh, no, 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 you don't want to live there. Perfectly good area, lovely suburban homes, you know, this kind of thing. This is going back maybe about 10 years ago. And then found out after a lot of very detailed research that that was a middle-class black area and it wasn't appropriate for a white British engineer to move into that area. Yeah. 
And yeah. this is long after redlining or anything like that. It's just, you know, people being shepherded. And this is annoying. Well, this, told, it's, well, 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 this well, is happening. Yeah, it's very, and, and it just doesn't happen here. No, of course <laughs> not. But that's that's the way America is set up. And that's unfortunately why they're having so many problems at the moment. Helen, great to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. Helen Dale uh, reporting into us on why Tony Abbott uh, seems to rub so many people up the wrong way. He certainly seems to have upset Nicholas Sturgeon, uh, who thinks he shouldn't be part of any negotiation process to do with this government and Brexit, but which a couple of people have pointed out on Twitter isn't really for her to say. This is the woman who wants to get out of the United Kingdom and wants to remain in the European Union. So whether she has a view on who negotiates the deal or not uh, doesn't really matter, does it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's now time for the homeschooling section of the show, which we do every day uh, after 12.30. The news is over. Uh, we try and learn something that we didn't think uh, we knew enough about. Some of you, of course, may know about the Northern Lights. Some of you may have even seen the Northern Lights, but uh, they can be quite spectacular. Uh, I've seen them, but not quite in the full glory that they have been, uh, because I've seen them from sort of northern Scotland rather, from, rather than from any place uh, slightly further to the north. And over in Iceland, they can be seen very, very clearly. As well, let's talk now though to Dr. Ed Bloomer, astronomer at the Royal Museums of Greenwich. Um, Dr. Ed, a very good morning, very good afternoon to you, I should say. Afternoon, thanks for having me. Not at all. I mean, the Northern Lights are quite spectacular, aren't they? And I mean, until you've really seen what they are like, even um, not, I'm not talking about seeing them on video. I'm talking about just seeing them in the sky. Uh, they really are quite remarkable. Uh, yeah, that's true, and and also they're they're very difficult to capture, even just a part of the. Yeah. Uh, uh, nature on on camera as well so actually uh, you know seeing them in real life really is the best thing yes now i've seen as i say i've sort of bits of them if you like if that's not the wrong description from when i was in i saw them when i was in part of northern scotland up on the west coast there um is that possible to do um or was i just imagining it no no that's definitely possible uh, I, i've also seen them in scotland uh, as well right. and uh, they, they do come you know in in periods of uh, intense solar activity they are even seen as far south as devon oh really um yeah yeah it, it what i mean what's happening is that the flexing magnetic field of the earth uh uh means that they can be seen at different latitudes uh depending on the activity depending on what's actually going on okay um it's it's not common to see them as far south uh, as england really but um yeah in, in scotland yeah you you can see them um, yes uh, northern ireland quite quite often get uh, okay views as well and and is there a particular time of the year where they're more visible than others it, that's a little tricky. Uh, I suppose there's two aspects to that. I mean, first of all, is that as we move towards winter and we have longer nights, it's not great for everybody, but it's uh, good for astronomers. Right. Uh, you get more of a, a sort of a window of opportunity. Uh, the other thing is that they are essentially weather phenomenon. Mm. And so it depends on what the sun is up to. If the sun is uh, highly active, uh, then uh, you could uh, stand a much better chance of seeing something uh, pretty impressive. At the moment, we're in a fairly low period of uh, uh, solar activity, but within that, there's there's a lot of variance there, uh, and so the sun can occasionally have sort of unexpected little uh, sort of outbursts, if you like. So it, it's it's a tricky one because it, it is a sort of space weather phenomenon. Right. Um, and, and when you see them, are, I mean, this might sound ridiculously stupid as a question, but when you see them, are they always doing the same thing, or do they kind of do different things? Well, the, the, the mechanism is, is, uh, is uh, 
well, in fact, even even that is not like we have a full understanding of what's going on. Right. But the mechanisms are the same. But no, uh, you you get arcs and you even get sort of little patches. You get uh, glows lower, uh, uh, sort of closer to the horizon, um, and and they're constantly shifting as mm. well. And the 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 shift, um, uh, the the sort of the rate that they shift at, um, as well as a variety of colours, uh, depends on the 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 various aspects of what's going on so so i I, w- I would say no there's quite a lot of variety there actually yes i mean i'm looking at the screen now that we're uh, just talking to you on and, and we've got uh, very helpfully from our tech people uh, we've got some uh, uh, some some visuals on the, the north and they look really spectacular absolutely remarkable how many times have you seen them <laughs> to be honest only once really only once oh, yes myself only once in in, in real life yeah. um, and it was in uh, scotland and i was i was pretty young as well right uh, um, I probably didn't even appreciate them as much as I should have because I, I was young enough to think, oh well, maybe just the sky glows green. Sometimes. Yeah, right. Just you just get used to it if you see it too yeah. often, I suppose. But but tell us what it actually is about. So what is what is causing the northern lights? What, what what's going on? So what's happening is the charged particles from the sun are, are streaming out all the time. So this is sort of the, the, the space weather aspect of it. And and those charged particles then charge up uh, atmospheric particles here on Earth, which then discharge and, and release light, like a fluorescent uh, light bulb, right. I, I suppose. Oh, okay. Um, and, and and so what you see uh, and in the, uh, the graphics you were, we were looking at there... Um, <clears throat> The uh, you sort of see the wavy field lines of the Earth's magnetic uh, field, which again is sort of in in motion. It's not so much turbulent, but it's 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 kind of uh, flexing uh, as well. So it's, it's it's basically a charge and a discharge of atmospheric particles. Uh-huh. And if you were in a plane, for example, would you fly through them or? Would you see them from a plane? Could you see them from a plane? You, you could see them from a plane. Certainly, you'd have to go pretty high up uh, in a plane to be in that in that zone. It's, I'm not saying it's not impossible, but you're not going to be doing it in a normal uh, commercial. Right. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Plane. So it's not sort of uh, thirty thousand feet job. No, no, I'm I'm afraid not. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm yeah, I'm not saying it's impossible, but but it's not it's not a typical uh, uh, sort of experience. Mm. And and indeed, there are lots of really impressive uh, images and and videos uh, taken from the International Space Station, right. looking down and look sort of looking the other way and seeing the atmosphere uh, uh, from above. Right. Um, uh, to see, and there's to see quite the a lot. Of, there's quite a lot of sort of mystery around them as well, isn't there? Quite a lot of myth. Uh, storytelling and and you know because they've been around for such a long time i think they were discovered um by the old norse um countries in the uh, in the first instance and it's it's also it's alternative name is the aurora borealis um but it's kind of like a lot of these phenomena i suppose it's got things attached to it like sort of folklore hasn't it uh, that's yeah, that's certainly true in in sort of Scandinavian countries. Um, I, I'm I'm no expert in that aspect of it, but but certainly these are a phenomenon that that you know if if you see them and you grow up with them, um, but before uh, let's say sort of the modern uh, scientific method and, and scientific investigation of it, then yeah, these things tend to be uh, attached to uh, myth and, and and legend and sort of cultural phenomenon. Yes, indeed. And if they are on, say, for example, one particular night, do they go for it? For, I mean, is there a period of time that they tend to be visible for? Uh, do you have to be lucky to catch them? Um, th- there is a bit of luck uh, involved. Uh, and certainly I, I try and tell people that there's not too much of a shortcut. Uh, you have to be prepared to go out when it's dark, let it be dark, switch off your phone and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there's every chance that you could see several hours uh, in a row of auroral activity mm. if you're lucky. But similarly, it might come and go. Again, it's a sort of weather phenomenon. And, and so you have to be prepared for the fact that that's a little bit uh, with the best one in the world um, uh, out of your control, Yes, uh, basically. And, and as a kind of function of the weather system, um, 
what follows the Northern Lights in that sense? Is there a, a period of calm, a period of wind, or what? Well, how does that work? Uh, well, that's a very complicated question. Is it? Uh, so, yeah, space weather is, is becoming sort of recognised as, as more and more kind of important. The more satellites we put up, uh, spacecraft, space stations, that that sort of thing, uh, the the interaction between the solar wind and the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth's magnetic field, the magnetic field of the the sun, we're realising that these are are perhaps best thought of as as linked systems. Yes. Um, that we can interpret them like the like the Met Office might try and interpret, um, you, you know. Uh, pressure and and humidity and all that sort of stuff um because they do have an impact now the aurora itself uh you know is they're not they're not caused by anything that we're worried about or we're not we're not worried about aurora as such but space weather as a more general uh, a term um is is something we're taking more and more of an interest because it it does uh impact on 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 areas that overlap with uh, sort of the modern world and everyday life that you don't think of in terms of astronomy right navigation of course you know everybody's using gps to navigate around but that relies on the gps system so uh, th- these things are not as um uh esoteric or not as uh, uh, re- remote as you might think right. they are and is is space weather changing uh, or is it kind of the same as it's always been well uh, various things go through different uh, uh, uh cycles um there's a sort of 12 year uh, solar cycle um of, of activity but wrapped up within that there's a lot of uh, variation uh of course we have the earth's magnetic field is uh, shifting and uh we're monitoring it now in in the modern era in a way that we we haven't before but we know that it has uh, changed in the past but uh should there be uh, a significant change this will probably be the first time that humanity is really sort of properly kept kept their eyes on it all the mm. time um so i think it's i think it's more that we're, we're we're harnessing more and more tools to start to see the changes and the longer that goes on the more we can see long-term patterns yes very very interesting well i think you should get yourself dr red over onto uh you know iceland or somewhere and go and go and check it out for I, a, I do need to i do real. need to yes i mean i know there's a pandemic on and all that but i think you can probably get special dispensation can't you <laughs> <laughs> are, are you guys open at the moment down in greenwich so we're beginning to open up uh, 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 at Royal Museums Greenwich. Uh, so yes, so we're we're um, yeah yeah we're we're controlling the the flow of people. People have to book ahead, but right. yeah, we're beginning to open up. Is the planetarium the because the planetarium is quite a decent old place to visit, isn't it? I think so. Yes, I'm one of the planetarium astronomers, so I, I certainly think so. Uh, we're not open uh, there yet. Uh, we want to make sure that we're doing that uh, in in a proper and kind of controlled right. way. So uh, we do have a plan. We're, we're hoping to be um, okay. uh, launching some programs soon. Yeah. Because when you do reopen that, is there is there an opportunity perhaps for people to come and look at the Northern Lights on on that sort of scale? Uh, in the planetarium, we te- uh, we tend not to uh, show off uh, the the aurora uh, so much because. Um, sort of still photographs don't quite uh, uh, capture it. Uh, so more of our stuff uh, at the, it's not to say that we don't do anything, but uh, more of our, our stuff at the observatory uh, relates to uh, sort of what's up in the sky tonight. Yes, right. um, you know, we, we want to be able to show audiences how to find things in the sky, show how things uh, uh, change, certainly. Okay, good stuff. Dr. Ed Bloomer from the Royal Museums of Greenwich. Thank you very much indeed. If you didn't know about the Northern Lights, you do now. Uh, They are quite spectacular, definitely worth a visit to Scotland or any other part uh, of the world where you can see them very well uh, because it really is quite a remarkable experience if you can do it. Maybe somebody should start live streaming the Northern Lights. That way, uh, obviously, people, more people would see it. If they're not doing it at the planetarium, where are they doing it? Uh, This is Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.